All right. Hi, everybody. It's our CFP Talk 113. My name's Bob Akairi. I'm going to be joined by my regular hosts, Sirius and JD. And in fact, I see Sirius right now. So it's Tuesday night. We love hearing from you. We love hearing what your thoughts are about college football. And goodness, do we have a lot to talk about. Not only is it the CFP, but it's the silly season. So we've got lots of things to talk about around coaches, around obviously last weekend's games, the games that are upcoming. So whatever you feel like. So if you want to talk, feel free to hit request and we'll send you an invite to speak. JD, serious. Have you joined us? Yep, we're here. Fantastic. Tuesday night, we are in the final moments of November, looking forward to a championship weekend, bowl season, and of course, the silly season of the coaching carousel. So many headlines to talk about. Can't wait to talk about. Serious, have you made it up or is it? uh... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm here. (laughs) Excellent. So yeah, again, if you have thoughts on what's going on in college football, we'd love to talk to you. Obviously, a lot of positions are still open, although... Some have closed, including Auburn specifically. But, you know, that opens up others. Heck, even Liberty is now open because of that. And UNLV was a big kind of surprise. Not not the biggest surprise in the universe. But I think some folks were thinking Marcus Arroyo would get a little bit more time there. Western Michigan let go of Tim Lester. And, of course, you know, all the others that are open. Cincinnati's going to have to find someone new. Texas State, Stanford. (laughs) <laughs> Tulsa USF seems to have I don't understand quite what USF is trying to do they say they have somebody but clearly they must be coaching still because they're going to wait till Sunday to announce it um, they gave a teaser yesterday kind of one of those sort of cryptic messages that oh wouldn't it be nice if this was over referring to the coaching search and then today one of the reporters in the area announced that they're going to have that announcement on Sunday. So it's probably someone who's a current coach now. Who that is remains to be seen. But at least for the most part, that seems to take off the table. Coaches who were more free agents, like, gosh, Tom Herman's been tossed around with so many names and so many, I should say, positions out there, as well as some of the others. In addition, we've got, you know, uh, we'll see where things are going to go with Georgia Tech. Now the rumor seems to be they're going to promote their interim head coach UAB seems to want to have somebody by December 5th that's the big day for a lot of people because December 5th is the opening of the transfer portal and that is when a lot of these athletic directors would and the coaches would like to have that start to get things moving yeah so JD what's been on your mind this evening so far and again if you'd like to join the conversation hit request Well, so far, I think, you know, at least the things that have struck out in my mind so far as being, uh, I think, a little bit more strange on the silly season. Uh, I'm going to start with that because obviously right now the playoffs, you've got a very clear top four revealed tonight. I don't think there's really any surprises. USC and TCU win. They're in. TCU might even be able to get in if it's a close loss. I think Georgia and Michigan are guaranteed no matter what happens on Saturday. Uh, So at least in terms of what's happening with the season, I think it's now you just got to kind of look more towards, you know, is it going to be UCF or Tulane getting that spot for the G5? Are we going to get some interesting bowl matchups? You know, maybe we get like a Mizzou, Kansas in the Liberty Bowl or something else like that. I don't think there's a whole lot to talk about with that. But the one that I do want to talk about is just some of the wild connections that are happening right now in the coaching carousel. And the one that really has my mind right now is uh, Bruce Feldman reporting earlier today from The Athletic uh, that at the UNLV search, uh, I think a lot of people were very surprised with Marcus Arroyo 
being let go, especially given that all systems appear to look that UNLV wants to accept a bowl game. They're high up there in APR, uh, likely to take a bowl opportunity because we should have enough openings. Uh, but Bruce Feldman reporting that Gary Patterson is now the name to watch for that position. Uh, if you told me that Gary Patterson was taking another head coaching job, I wouldn't have been surprised after that, after this stint to Texas. But to take the UNLV job, that one just kind of seems out of nowhere and kind of a little bit of an odd cultural fit, if you ask me. But still very, very fascinated. You know, you mentioned Tom Herman being rumored for places like Cincinnati. Uh, you've got all these other coaches who have been available on the market. And then, of course, with Liberty being opened up, who knows what kind of can of worms they're going to develop with that one. J.D., I mean, if you think about it, Gary Patterson to UNLV, it kind of makes sense because, I mean, that's just what happens with aging stars who aren't ready to totally quit. You know, at the end of your career, you just go and do a prolonged stay in Vegas and kind of, you know, play the hits until you're ready to actually retire. You know, I, I just want to add to that real quick. UNLV actually is has had that history. I mean, probably the most notable head coach, I mean, that, that fits into that was John Robinson. After, long after he had faded out at USC, because he, was, uh, he won a national championship in the late 70s for USC and then went to coach the Rams and then had an, a really disastrous second ten. Not super disastrous. And, you know, there have been far worse second tenures, but it wasn't, you know, Schneider work, returning to K-State. This was someone who he returned and he was, he got to one Rose Bowl and then kind of petered out. I remember I was a student during that time and they fired him over voicemail. And then a few years later, he reemerged at UNLV. And by that time, he's, he was quite old um, and then sort of became eventually their uh, head coach and AD and then just became an AD because he, he couldn't get UNLV going anywhere at that point. His his coaching, I think he he was sub five hundred during his time there. So it wouldn't be totally out, unheard of for someone to decide to try and and kind of have a a place where. But although UNLV seems to be a little bit more high stress now, especially now that they're playing in that lovely stadium right now, and and I'm never going to say UNLV is a sleeping giant because they've never been a giant at any point but it seems like there is a lot more potential there you know we have somebody up here and i want to again we love to welcome in callers so cody what's up what's on your mind hey guys i hope everyone had a good thanksgiving um just my question would be uh say usc wins wins this weekend uh on friday against utah and say a conference champion like say one of the teams that are already locked in uh lose how realistic is it that usc could move up maybe to the three or two spot i'm i'm really only asking because i live in arizona and i would love to go watch them play in arizona so just kind of a biased question i guess um is it realistic or are they going to pretty much be four if they win on friday uh, I think if anything else, it's going to depend on how they win. I mean, if they go in and they blow out Utah, you know, we're talking something like 49 to 7 or something else like that or some other really atoning factor. I think that gets them the opportunity to jump up, especially if, you know, you have a TCU stumble. I feel if Michigan ends up stumbling as well. I mean, if you lose to Purdue, that is hands down the worst loss of the weekend. Uh, but I think they're definitely going to need some kind of help in order to move up. I don't see Georgia dropping down below to the four mark. Uh, Michigan, unless it looks bad against Purdue, I don't see that happening. TCU, kind of that mix in right there. Uh, but I think in order for USC to even be in that conversation, they got to win and they got to win big over Utah no matter what. 
I'm also of the thought that not only would they have to win big, but I mean, even if they did, the committee sometimes shows a lot of hesitancy to move people. I, I know that was something where people were pushing Boo Corrigan uh, a little bit in the post-rankings press call was, you know, what did Michigan have to do to get past Georgia? And they said, you know, and it, uh, don't get me wrong, when, when they explain their thoughts, you know, when he's speaking on behalf of the committee, he knows how to make any decision sound, you know, logical and, and well-reasoned. But after something like that, after, and I mean, he really, they, they did stick so much to the fact that Ohio State was in it up until, in their mind, even into the fourth quarter. So for that reason, they decided Michigan wasn't going to pass Georgia based on that law, uh, that win compared to, and because that was the way it was phrased, it was like compared to Georgia, you know, winning at home against Georgia Tech. But I think for USC to move up, it, it would need, Gosh, we need a loss by one of those other three teams. And I'm not saying, and as we've talked about, this, the top two almost certainly won't fall completely out. But then that might be the reshuffle um, that would get USC moving up. But if everyone wins out, I'm hesitant to see any real change in that top four, quite frankly. I mean, what do, you, do you guys agree with me on that, J.D.? serious? Yep, that's how I see it. Is in order, I don't think that USC can get past an undefeated team unless maybe if TCU looks really bad against K-State but still pulls it out like in a close win. So like almost and every then, other win they've ever had. <laughs> except, they, figured, they figured out how to blow out Iowa State this time. So like that helps. Um, but that combined with USC coming in and just destroying Utah in every possible way and as a total makeup game for the earlier loss in the season, like maybe that would be enough. Um, you know, we're talking like Caleb Williams has like a career day and USC somehow manages to find a defense. Um, like everything would have to line up just right. But otherwise, yeah, I think that they're kind of stuck at, at the four spot unless one of those three teams loses. Yeah, and I still think as well, I think one of the other big thing is on top of those losses, it's going to have to depend on how those losses clearly go. I mean, granted, all these teams are playing teams that have at least three losses, but there's a different variation of looking back, right? Like if you're Michigan and you lose to Purdue for literally any reason, um, I think that's probably going to be able to knock you down all the way to fourth, and that would push USC up, I think, by default. Uh, but otherwise, you're going to have to see something like Kansas State takes TCU to the woodshed. I think even if TCU, you know, kind of pulls out this BS win like they have been all year long, uh, I really struggle to see how, at least with USC's resume in the way that they have it right now, uh, for them to be able to put them over TCU if TCU is still undefeated. Because at the end of the day, that one loss will still be up there. It'll still be pertinent. Uh, and we don't really have a situation where, you know, you've had a situation like a 2014 uh, Oregon being ranked above Florida State, for example. Yes, they had the one loss uh, and they atoned that with the win over Arizona in that championship game. I don't see that, though, with USC happening if TCU continues to go on to win just because it would be another top 10 win for TCU. It would be another ranked win under their belt. Uh, given the amount of wins and the strength of schedule that they've had, I find it really difficult for them to lose uh, at least their position uh, when it comes to USC, unless there's something disastrous against Kansas State. Is Nick Saban sitting at home calling other teams saying, let me see how I can help you to win so we can get in? 
Well, hi, Aaron. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I – gosh. Is Nick Saban, do you think <laughs> – oh, you mean like obviously we're talking about opponents here um, of, of some of these teams. Goodness, wouldn't that be funny if Nick Saban's like, hey – you know? and it's so funny too because, I mean, Nick Saban, you know, I, and obviously he said it facetiously, but we've gone over this before. When they hired him at Alabama, he, he joked that they had hired a mediocre coach but the best recruiter around. And I think to some extent that is his – you know, he, he is that ultimate CEO who is focused completely on recruiting. That is his, you know, his MO, and he's proven it works great. But, um, yeah, that would be really fun. Can I lend you? I don't know if offering to lend somebody uh, Bill O'Brien's as quite as has the luster on it that it did perhaps before the season. <laughs> I love that. What what else are you thinking these days, Aaron? I guess Michael. I'm sorry, Michael. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Oh, What's I'm up? eating nachos, but I'm just thinking, like, if I were a head coach and I wanted to get into the playoffs, I would be making phone calls. And how can I help another team win or how can I help another team lose? Jeff Brown just like magically got a gigantic box of game tape on Michigan and like analysis and breakdowns on them <laughs> in the mail with like no return address. But there's a postmark in there that seems to come from Alabama for some reason. Yeah, that would that would be funny. Just, you know, kind of like, Bobby Bowden after the the Marshall tragedy, you know, sending them, you know, game tape and and you know equipment and stuff, trying to help them out as they as they were rebuilding, um, except for you know more selfish and nefarious reasons. Serious? Are you implying that the Big Ten would ever conspire to make sure that their Big Ten champion looked better than TCU heading into a playoff? I'm sure this is unprecedented. Oh, I was thinking of, of you know, trying to help Purdue pull off the, the Spoiler Maker special. But um, <laughs> I guess, I you know, hopefully Michigan doesn't need any help at all, if, you know, if they're going to be, you know, beating Purdue as the only unranked Power 5 conference championship game participant, if I, if I read that correctly. So I, my question is, well, first of all, to the caller, uh, and I apologize, it's Michael, um, who do you, I mean, are you, are you yourself a, a Bama fan? Yes. Yeah. Who would you like probably. to see that? I mean, let's say they don't get into the playoff, which, who would you like to see them face? Oh, not in the playoff. Dude, I'm so spoiled. It's <laughs> not fair. It's not fair. Cause like, if we're not in, we're kind of spoiled. You are, but I mean, let's say, I mean, cause as some people have even said, what it ended up being like an, another Alabama Clemson in the orange bowl that's been thrown out there. Although I don't know what the odds are of that. I haven't, I admit I'm not as, <laughs> I'm not as into the, I'm not as good as predicting the New Year's six matches, but would that be something Ooh, you'd be probably interested in? Ohio State. If Ohio State was still Ooh. out of it, I'd rather play Ohio State than Clemson just for prestige. Cause Clemson's just kind of on the outs this year a little bit. Although we do have the revenge factor cause they did punch us in the face in the past, but I think I'd, Ohio State would be, if they're not in, then I'd rather play Ohio State than anybody. Bryce Young versus C.J. Stroud, that'd be fun. Um, especially if, if it right now it looks like neither one's going to be uh, making a push for, for the Heisman this year. So that could be you know, a really interesting matchup of, of really talented quarterbacks who just didn't quite get there this year. So all the buzz is Tennessee is so pissed that Alabama is ranked one spot above them. What do you guys thought? 
I think one of the things, the takes that I appreciated was Tony Barnhart, the dean of the SEC, where he had noted, you know, in the basketball tournament every single year, the committee will factor in injuries and how that plays out for a team currently. And I think right now, if you're the committee, that injury for Hendon Hooker for being out for the remainder of the year is really reflecting hard back on them. Like, yes, they win and they absolutely destroyed Vandy to close out the season. Uh, but you still have to remember, you know, they gave up a huge, absurd amount of points to an unranked South Carolina team. And, you know, when you give up 63 points to an unranked team, that has nothing to do with your quarterback's play. And I think they Jenny, really kind of look. <laughs> Jenny, what do you think the line would be? Alabama, Tennessee, neutral field. What do you think Vegas would put the line? Uh, currently as is, I mean, if you don't have Hendon Hooker, I would probably give Alabama a slight line on that one, at least three and a half. Uh, but currently, I mean, you still have to remember, uh, end of day, uh, yes, Tennessee did have that win at home. Uh, they did win it by less than three, which that is technically home field advantage. Uh, but I would say, again, more than anything else, I'm appreciating the take of, you know, if the committee is considering injury more than anything else and justifying that for the reason that uh, Alabama is above Tennessee right now, I get that one. Uh, but I still also get the entire point of, you know, you play for results on the field. Tennessee ended up being victorious on that one. Uh, but I think either way, you're going to see both of these teams in a New Year's Six Bowl this year, no matter what. You know, just to add, I know what because that was a point that, again, was brought up quite a few times to Boo Corrigan and sort of the post discussion where the press was asking him about why the committee had ranked teams where they were. And, you know, again, I'm going to one of the questions, you know, was specifically about Alabama and Tennessee being one spot apart. The Tennessee beat them head to head and, you know, asking basically what your your question was. And he said the committee really the bigger determination was they saw an Alabama team with a couple of close losses. And then they saw a Tennessee team that had such a big loss to South Carolina recently. And it kind of it's interesting because at the same time when they talk about it, when you when you put them on the spot, they say the committee is trying to be careful about recentism. And and trying to look at the totality of work, for example, then when they'll talk about USC, they'll say, well, their one loss was a you know the, the two point conversion in a passionate game is how they you know, an emotional game is how we phrased it. And in retrospect, they beat an Oregon State team that that ended up being good. But at the same time, you know, I think he also said it, it also was impressive that they had back to back ranked wins against UCLA and then Notre Dame. And this is something I had said a couple of weeks ago. I'm like. You know, USC, it's going to get it's going to get that boost by playing Notre Dame towards the end, because try as they might, the media loves that game and especially the older media love that game. And there's older folks who are on the committee and that that for some reason hits them right in the nostalgia vein. So when USC and Notre Dame play and one of them has a chance to bounce up from it even harder they tend to, to really grab onto it because, you know, wow, they beat, you know, the. that's why historically they are two of the teams that always sometimes get preseason ranks that might be a bit too high. Although this year USC kind of surprised everyone, including USC fans. They were, USC fans are just thrilled with the potential opportunity to get blown out in the semifinal. I, I'm not even joking. Like, USC fans, if you ask them before the season, would you take a blowout in the semifinal? They would all say, hell yes. So don't get me wrong. USC fans are probably the least egotistical about any of this at this point because they're just happy to be along for the ride. But again, going back, though, to that Alabama-Tennessee uh, split, that was definitely where they were going at. I know you wanted to follow on that, Sirius. Yeah, I mean, I think that 
the big winner of so many teams losing this past week with LSU losing, Clemson losing, um, was definitely uh, and Oregon was Tennessee. I mean, after that South Carolina loss, like they they dropped pretty hard, um, but luckily some some space cleared out above them and they were able to come back up. Um, they actually benefited more than Alabama did because of where they were where everybody was ranked. Um, I think that you look at the South Carolina game and not only is it a bad loss, not only did they lose Hinton Hooker at the end of it um, for the rest of the season, but it also, I mean, I think most people looking at it said that, you know, their, their offense was what was driving the bus on this specifically Hinton Hooker leading that offense um, and the deep threat that he had developed with Jalen Hyatt, um, the ability to break out those big plays and score quickly. The defense was always a little suspect, and the South Carolina game really highlighted that. And I know that they were missing a linebacker, but missing a single defensive player shouldn't result in you giving up 63 points. Um, you look at the, the Vanderbilt game, and there, you know a lot of people are like, oh, but they still managed to score you know, 55 points. Uh, well, it's 56 points. But they did with about a 50% completion rate from their quarterback and basically just breaking off big run after big run after big run. And then they scored five touchdowns on 50-plus yard rushing plays. This was not the Tennessee offense that we have seen all season by any means. I mean, Jalen Hyatt didn't even hit 100 yards, only had three receptions, um, no touchdowns. So this wasn't the, the kind of game where we saw against Alabama or LSU, this was a very, very different offense. And maybe they've, they'll have some kind of a game plan worked out by the time bowl season rolls around, but Joe Milton is not hitting hooker. And at the end of the day, Bryce Young is still Bryce Young. And we've seen him pull off crazy stuff on the field all season long um, with a Alabama team that is not as good as it normally is. Where would um, you put the line? Neutral field, where would you put the line? Alabama. Without him, right now, without him and Hooker, yep. Where would you put the line? Neutral. At least, at least seven points for Bama. I was thinking ten. I was surprised, Jed. He said three. I dialed. I dialed it back. I was thinking ten. Alabama's played weird this year, so I dialed it back to seven. Um, but yeah, I, 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 Alabama has the the defense as much as it struggled this year compared to past years to take advantage of the limitations that you that Tennessee now has. Uh, Vanderbilt very much did not. And part of it too, is just, do you have a secondary that's fast enough and has the, the legs to be able to run down all of these massive overthrows from Joe Milton and snag a few of them? Cause I think that's essentially what it, what it would come down to. Um, and also still be able to, to uh, you know, contain some of that rush game and prevent those really big chunk yardage plays because they put up 330, 350 yards of, of offense of uh, of rushing in like 16 minutes of clock of game clock. So um, they were just scoring at will. So about, I know y'all are tired, of, but JD said he would favor Alabama by three. You said you would favor Alabama by seven. So do you think the committee? thinks like that they have to don't they have to i and think I'll they do listen from here on out no i i absolutely do think they do 
And, you know, again, it was so interesting in that, as I said, there were several calls, uh, pardon me, uh, press calls, I should say, to the, the committee kind of post-list discussion. And, and they tried to kind of put Boo Corrigan on the spot about Hendon Hooker's injury and how that much affected the way the committee ranked it. And he, you know, his own quote was like, it was certainly something that we considered, but if you remember, and this is his quote, not mine. If you remember correctly, I believe they were down 49-31 at the time when he went out. We do have more information on their game based on with Vanderbilt, and we go off of what we've seen so far. So someone, again, followed up on that and said, so Tennessee ranking any different if Hendon Hooker's healthy now? And then he did the classic, you know, don't know. That's speculation on our side. Again, we're talking body of work that they have in the most recent day game they had was with Vanderbilt. J.D., I know you wanted to bring something up. Uh, Yes, I did. Actually, some breaking news that is coming out right now. Uh, So this is from John Bryce over at Football Scoop. A couple of other local reporters as well are starting to chime in on it. Uh, UAB uh, has apparently zeroed its uh, coaching search. uh, And the man who will be uh, replacing Bill Clark full time uh, appears to be Trent Dilfer of all people available. So Trent Dilfer, the former... Yes. Uh, again, this is why I'm absolutely baffled by this. This is from John Bryce at Football Scoop. Uh, so multiple sources in the last 24 hours have told Football Scoop that the Blazers search has shifted and the focus is now on Super Bowl winning NFL quarterback Trent Dilfer, who guided Nashville private school David Lipson Academy to a third straight berth in the TSSAA Division II Class AA State Championship. Uh, has the man coached in college football? Uh, no, he has not. Uh, but UAB, you know, if you want to make some arguments about, uh, you know, the state of Alabama or the Board of Regents trying to uh, keep down Blazers football, uh, you know, this is uh, this is one of those changes from Bill Clark to uh, Trent Dilfer. I am I am stunned by that. I mean, because he's a California boy. I mean, originally, I, I, obviously, it's been a long time, but I remember he was a Fresno State. All that stuff. I mean, I, I grew up in the Central Valley, so, you know, he, he's a Fresno State guy. And, yeah, wow. You know, it, it's always been people, again, sometimes don't necessarily, you know, value exactly how great Bill Clark was at UAB for how tough of that job was. And, and again, there, there's a strong chance that he may, Bill Clark may pop up again as a, a head coach somewhere because it sounds like he's interested in, in coaching again. And a lot of folks, I think, would be, especially at the, the teams that aren't necessarily the prestige teams would be foolish not to consider him because of what he did with UAB, coaching them, survive, taking them through the, uh, the temporary disbandment of the program that ended up being canceled so they were able to bring the program back and then doing so well upon his return. But you know, before Clark got there, there's a reason they tried to shut down you know, the, the program. They were awful for many, many years. And... Gosh, this is right hot on the heels of all those players that, you know, there was a they tweet, they finally tweeted it because they were trying to lobby hard to keep the interim head coach as the possible new uh, to, as a permanent head coach. But because I believe UAB is what, six and six this season, guys, I think that's they are. Yeah, with Brian Vincent as the interim. And and uh, yeah, the letter came out this morning, uh, midday from the players um Group group letter signed by the team, um, and they said they hadn't been able to get in contact with the president of UAB. They tried to, and were told by the secretary or administrative assistant that they didn't have room in the schedule um, to meet with them. 
So they, you know, went to social media to share their their view to try to keep Brian Vince, Bryant Vincent as the interim head coach. And uh, apparently that didn't work. Going for the guy who is possibly has the biggest asterisk next to Super Bowl winning quarterback in the history of the NFL is quite a choice. Um, I mean, like usually that team's the one that's pointed out is you can win a Super Bowl even if you don't have a great quarterback. He's turned into an amazing media career. Um, but wow, what what a choice. You know, oh, we had someone who was coming up to talk about it. It looks like he, he vanished there. JD, what I mean, so this school, by the way, guys, this school is actually serious. I should ask you, the school he's at is in Nashville, so it's not too far from from where he's at. But presumably, man, I mean, what's the last time? I mean, there's been I mean, not... I mean, when you say too far, are we talking like geographically, chronologically, or like actual job responsibilities because well <laughs> it's a, it's a small time. private school in nashville because we're not even talking about lipscomb university we're talking about lipscomb academy which was which would be the high school version going from that to a g5 program that's about to move up to the to the aac so that's uh that's a huge leap and especially i think he's only been at lipscomb for a couple of years now maybe like three years so yeah yeah, I mean, because in general in Tennessee, like the private schools have their own division. And for the most part, you know, they're not huge. You know, it's not even like you're you're dealing with a, you know, thousand, two thousand person high school. Uh, most of those schools are pretty small. So going from that to uh, to trying to take over a, even a GFAC program, man, that's a that's a leap. I'm just trying to remember the last time there was even a remotely successful situation where and usually they're established high school coaches. They're like high school coaches that are legends, usually in the region where the school is, who've jumped up and then actually been successful on at least the FBS level. Gus Malzahn. That's true. But he didn't go immediately into being a head coach. He went, I remember his, his he went with Mitch Mustaine to Arkansas. And then there was that whole fiasco. You, you probably remember because, you know, God, who's the head coach? Houston Nutt ended up, you know, switching the offense because he had an amazing running back. So he switched away from, I think, the plan because that was part of the way they were able to get Mitch Mustaine to come as they brought his head coach. And then I believe he went to, oh gosh, he went to another school. It wasn't Tulsa, was it? And then eventually, yeah, he became the head coach of Arkansas State. But I mean, that was that was yeah, more of, he was at Tulsa. Yeah, and that's more of a typical transition because obviously there's we've we've interviewed plenty of former high school. I mean, a couple of great Texas high school head coaches who who again moved up through the ranks and then jumped to be college head coaches. I mean, you know, again, UTSA, Texas Tech. There's there's plenty of examples of coaches who've done just that, just like what Malzahn's done. But yeah, I mean, I know I still Tony remember Sanchez. Yeah, I mean, he was the Bishop was Gorman the, to UNLV, and he was the last one I remember. But he was like a legend at Bishop Gorman. I mean, Bishop Gorman's oh, one yeah. of those high school powers. So that seemed at least you've got a guy who is not only a great, a, a good football coach at the high school level, but can certainly recruit in uh, a local area because schools like you know UNLV. 80, 80, you yeah, he was 85, 85 and five at Bishop Gorman over six seasons, and then was twenty and forty at, at UNLV. So I mean. Not exactly a great history to look at for coaches who made that immediate transition. Who was the guy you went to hired? Was it Dodge? I think he was another guy who did that straight transition. Oh, um, yeah, Todd Daigie is the one that you're thinking oh, of. That's right, Todd, yeah, Todd Daigie. That's it. 
let's go back to Trent Dilfer. He has an eye for quarterbacks. <laughs> he pulled up. He pulled up Tua from when he was young, and I rolled tide. I'm I'm one of those rare Blazer fans. I went to UAB, but I rolled tide since I was in second grade. So I do kind of understand football in the South, and I do like the hire. Thank you for breaking the news. Who was that? JD that broke the news. Yep. Yeah, I'll take credit for it. But yeah, uh, I'm I'm still a little uh, in shock by this hire more than anything else because uh, you know he's had his experience with Elite Eleven. He has had the experience of finding young quarterbacks to help uh, mentor them. But the first thing that I immediately start to think of is you know if you want to go with talking heads who are good with high school recruits and can help develop talent, uh, I immediately start to think of the Herm Edwards disaster that was Arizona State. Uh, when you took a guy who had not been in the ranks of college coaching for 30-something years uh, and then suddenly had a completely new world that he had to deal with. Uh, I think especially with Trent Dilfer with them uh, at UAB going into much harder competition in the American uh, with all the controversy that they've had of the program being shut down and then revived. Uh, with this new stadium that's being rebuilt, these new facilities that are coming up. Uh, it just baffles me of why Trent Dilfer is the guy, and it almost makes me feel like this is a decision that's not made by an athletic director. Y'all follow me on this? Like It feels like something that this is dictated down to the athletic director and told, make this happen, as opposed to the athletic director using a search firm to find the guy that they need or fitting in criteria that they need. Uh, it just seems very, very odd that Dilfer out of all of the possible opportunities uh, ends up being the guy who ends up replacing Bill Clark, who literally revived this program. Yeah, it definitely kind of feels like that PR search firm, like, Oh, look, we can hire this person. They'll make a lot of buzz. You know, it's a nationally known media personality. And, you know, that's kind of the selling point. And some kind of a, you know, a stuffed shirt who doesn't really know athletics is like, yeah, sure, that sounds great. No, it's kind of a stepping stone, same as UAB got Jared Hass as a basketball coach, and then he went to Stanford. UAB is kind of a stepping stone. It's a starting place, and they do like the name, but it's a place where we get three or four or five years out of somebody, and then they move on to something better if they're good. I think that's and, and that makes sense. I'm just surprised there's no interim step. Like he's not typically you at least expect him maybe take gosh, yeah, a coordinator. You, you take a coordinator or yeah. maybe someone who is like a talented AHC position type coach that's been in the business for a while. Like an up and coming name, not somebody who spent five years coaching or four years coaching high school at, you know, a small private school is like his retirement project. I mean, he went 43 and 10 there. They've lost two, you know, one game in the past two years combined, and they were two and nine when he took over. So something's working, but also, you know, it's private, so you can recruit. But yeah, it's, I understand the whole idea of it being a stepping stone, but yeah, usually you find somebody who has at least a little bit of a qualification at the college level before handing them the reins. I mean, even FCS teams usually don't go straight to the, to the high school ranks. Well, we just had one like that. I mean, because we had, you know, Ed McCaffrey. He was, he jumped from uh, high school uh, to FCS Northern Colorado and they just fired him. I mean, he didn't, he only had two seasons. He had, because he was technically a 2020, but of course they, they didn't have a 2020 season in North, Northern Colorado. But he went like, 
back-to-back three and eight seasons, and they already let him go. And that was that was an FCS example. I I can think of one guy who has been successful, and he was in the Metroplex, but he didn't go to like a huge team. He went to he went to start a program, restart technically. But Texas Wesleyans, Prudhomme over there, he's he's built them up. I mean, they were miserable for the first two years, but they expected to be. And then he's built up a, a team that's been a, a pretty decent winner at NAIA. But again, jumping to some of these levels, it's it's pretty astonishing. I mean, because I mean, I, you can't help but think of like Jerry Faust or <laughs> uh, I, there's just no. They're, they're there are really, very, very few good examples of this ever working. I mean, Kevin Kelly, Presbyterian, again, FCS, Presbyterian hires him after this massive, you know, almost 20 year career as a head coach. With and famous a huge, huge winning percentage too, and they fired him after one season. He went two and nine in one year, and they called it quits. Like that's how bad it went for him. So the the track record on these hires of coming straight from high school, it's not good. Uh, interrupting here really quickly, uh, confirmation now from Sports Illustrated, Ross Dellinger uh, also confirming that this is the hire that UAB is going with. Uh, and I quote, a splashy stunner, UAB is targeting former Super Bowl champion quarterback Trent Dilfer as its next coach. Sources tell SI now, confirming football scoop. So how long from now are we going to be talking about whether this was a good decision or not? How much room do you think they're going to give him, like two seasons, three seasons? I'm watching Michigan basketball right now, and Jawan Howard turned out to be a really good coach. Basketball's a bit different, though. Yeah, I mean, I because we, we we see that a lot in in the NBA and at college, where you have guys that transfer over from playing career and everything that you know from that side of it pretty quickly into getting a head coaching gig if they have the right connections. But football, I think, just because of the size of the programs. And, I mean, even if you talk to some of the coordinators and everything, if you catch them in an honest moment, I remember when Derek Mason got hired at Vandy, and he said that he had this, like, binder full of stuff, like his plan. James Franklin said the exact same thing. He had a, a binder of his plans as a head coach and what it would involve running a program. Um, Derek Mason famously lost his for a couple of years, found it, said it actually had some useful things that he wished that he could have found earlier. But there are coordinators that have said, like, the the managerial aspects of running a huge staff, dealing with 80 scholarship kids, you know, total on the roster could be 120 100 or more, depending on, on the size of the school, and all of your support staff, too. Like, it, it is a huge undertaking compared to, you know, like a basketball team where you've got, I don't know, 15 players. And most of those are going to be your bench guys that aren't going to see a ton of playing time. You're you're pretty much focused on like seven of them, and and I think that the playbooks are are a lot different too, um, in terms of, of what kind of plays you're going to be running. Oh, um, and how familiar? Hey, serious. I got well, and, and, how much could have and being college football changed in the last twenty eight years? <laughs> uh, is the is is the like the wing T still thing? We still playing like you know I formation football. But yeah, so I think that that's a little bit different. Deion Sanders, honestly, would probably be your best example of a coach that's been successful. But, I mean, he's been involved at lower levels in various functions for like almost a decade before he got got the Jackson State gig. Is is Trent Dilfer the luckiest quarterback to ever win a Super Bowl 
sitting on that defense. I'm pretty sure he's yes. the, worst, the worst quarterback to ever win a Super Bowl. Oh, absolutely. You yes. might you might have an argument for Peyton Manning's last one, that last ride, because he leaned on their defense really heavy, but he was still a much more talented quarterback than Trent Dilfer was. I, I mean, like hands a down. Of other like pretty bad quarterbacks who still won. I mean, Trent Dilfer obviously is going to be a strong one. The first one I'm immediately thinking of is Brad Johnson from that 2002 Tampa Bay Buccaneers team. Uh, just completely riding on Warren Sapp's and that incredible defense with John Lynch uh, and for them being able to put on Brad Johnson is one of those guys that uh, there's absolutely nothing that is striking about him, including that name. Uh, but I think like at least in terms of quarterbacks who got lucky, I mean, you got to be like throwing up names like Mark Ripon, Doug Williams, uh, maybe if you want to argue Jim Plunkett, I could hear that as well. But yeah, Trent Dilfer, at least in terms of like quarterbacks who have won a Super Bowl, uh, he is priming up there of a quarterback who, uh, you know, you don't even want to say game manager, uh, but a guy who got to be a part of that experience. Hey, I just, I just wanted to, I wanted to welcome. We have one more person up here right now. Tyler, what's up? What's up guys? Uh, can y'all hear me? Sure. Can. All right. Uh, since y'all were speaking about quarterbacks like that, I was just thinking of Joe Flacco's man. Man's got two Super Bowls. He is elite. Elite? <laughs> a little bit of a throwback. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I guess you could say that, but I was just kind of like thinking that his defense kind of carried him a good bit that year for the Ravens. You know, going back to what was brought up earlier, I have to say Deion Sanders may be the best argument for someone who did basically just come out of high school. And hit the ground running. And I think at this point we can say better than I think anybody expected other than perhaps the AD who hired him. And even that AD was probably just hoping for a little bit of splash and then, you know, some wins. But I don't think even this is beyond, I think, their expectations. So he may be the best example of someone who came out of high school coaching purely and and did that. But man, I, I Delfer is, is still a shock. I mean, unfortunately, still the odds there may not be good and you know we have someone else who wanted to join in uh horny frog what's up yeah i just really want to say how amazing it is that tcu did this this year i mean first or new coach coming from smu we we had no shot to do what we're doing right now oh no kidding i think uh you know i am obviously biased i went to tcu uh so the fact that they are doing such an incredible job uh, I think this year has blown away everybody's expectations of Sonny Dykes in year one. Uh, I think TC would have been really happy with like a seven and five season, uh, showing some signs of life, showing that like, you know, Max Duggan was going to be the quarterback that was originally promised. But the fact that they are undefeated and, you know, in a very wild sense, uh, currently in a position where theoretically they could still advance to the playoffs with a loss in the conference uh. championship game. I mean, here's the thing. Here's the thing. So you want to make all the arguments that you possibly can uh, for that or against that, however you want to split it up. Uh, the idea that TCU still has a path that they can get to the playoffs with a loss, I think is an absolutely mind-blowing idea to anybody who follows TCU football. Well, they, now, granted, they, they, they win, they're in. They win, they're they in. Win they're I in, like those chances. In, in my opinion, I mean, just like in 2014, they don't play a conference championship and they get left out for a – Ohio one loss Ohio State team and we had a better resume than them. So in 
And I'm, I'm afraid it's going to happen again if we lose. I mean, there's always that possibility, and especially if, you know, Kansas State runs up the score or something else like that. Uh, but, you know, the committee works in uh, mysterious ways. Uh, but I think at least with the strength of record, with the wins that they've had so far this season, uh, the ranked wins that they've had so far this season, I feel that TC is going to be in a good position. And again, they've played fantastic football. However you want to slice it, there are only three undefeated teams in the entire country. TC is somehow one of them. With the first year of Sonny Dykes at the wheel, uh, you've got your offensive coordinator, Garrett Riley. Uh, he's officially a finalist for the Broyles Award. Uh, you know, Joe Gillespie, uh, who would come in as the defensive coordinator from Tulsa, you know, he's on a lot of short lists right now to be that next head coach up at Tulsa. Uh, momentum is flowing right now in Fort Worth, and it has been a delight to see TCU be this mystery dark horse team uh, that ended up playing uh, this season. The the craziest part to me is that Max Duggan wasn't even a starter from day one. That he got 100%. Benched. One hundred percent. This I don't think this has ever been done. A, a guy that gets benched, not even starting at the first game of the year, and now he's going to New York for the Heisman Trophy uh, ceremony. Like, what the hell is this? <laughs> it is a magical ride, and I will definitely affirm that. Uh, I think the fact that you know uh, one of the other things that I think is really striking about the Big Twelve as well is you know Brett Yomark. Uh, announced all these branded partnerships a little bit earlier today. And, you know, if you want to talk about a conference that seems that they've suddenly had a life under a new commissioner, the Big 12 is looking really nice for the years to come forward, even with Oklahoma and Texas leaving that conference. Uh, I'm really, really uh, pleased to see the way that a lot of these teams have really stepped up. I mean, this is the second consecutive year that neither Texas or Oklahoma is in the championship game. Uh, you have a strong opportunity to make a really big statement with sending a new team to the playoffs. And I think overall, just seeing, you know, eight different teams uh, who are bull eligible. Actually, it might even be. No, it is eight. <laughs> Unfortunately, West Virginia getting that win does not get them up to the APR. But, you know, to have 80 percent of your teams get bull eligible uh, to see TCU stay undefeated through all that. A very nice, solid middle class of a Kansas State uh, of all these other programs that are still in the running for really good teams. And then, you know, even teams like Texas Tech, you know, uh, seven and five against a brutal schedule, but getting wins over Texas and Oklahoma, getting a bunch of ranked wins across the season and looking really good under the first year with Joey McGuire at the helm. Uh, it's a really, really good time right now to be in the Big 12, regardless of what is happening with Oklahoma and Texas. And the fact that, TCU seems that they seem pretty primed to be one of those leaders in that new edition of the conference. I think it's wonderful to watch. Uh, and obviously, no bias coming out of that. Yeah, I just wanted to give my two cents on the frogs. Thank you. You know, one thing I just wanted to say is the Big 12 is definitely turning into something interesting under your mark. I was wondering how that would turn out. I was optimistic only because it seems like it was a striking hire to go outside of the box. And the reason I'm bringing it up is something today that caught my attention. And you know, we tweeted it mostly because I was found it interesting, but they are doing a cross promotion with, it was buried in a larger announcement, but the big 12 title game is going to have field marks as well as apparel tie-ins with a bathing ape, which some of you may know it. Some of you may not. It's been around for a while. It's, it's actually kind of funny because they were, they've, they're streetwear brand. That was, I remember, huge in 2001. And they were still huge, like 2012, 2011. They were still big then, and they're still around now. 
but um it's from japan originally but they've they've been a huge things and you know gosh hip-hop and they started i think going to sports because last year they put some uh they they got involved in f1 on one race with this camo pattern so they're gonna have big 12 stuff that's cross promoted with this i don't know they said they're gonna put that camo pattern and it's not like a, a true camo pattern it's really kind of a sort of you know imagine some kind of you know i don't want to say foofy but it's definitely like a sort of a streetwear kind of approach to it and to me the big 12 is probably the least the 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 conference I would have previously least imagined, but at the same time, I know you, Mark. He was at the you know he was with the Nets. He knows the NBA. NBA's always been a little bit smarter about kind of engaging fans at all levels. You know, coming into the Big Twelve, a more formal. You know, I never would have guessed that coming out of them. But now this is I I wrote to them. I actually wrote to the Big Twelve. I'm like, hey, you know, what, what's going on here? Is this something coming from him? And he's like, yeah, this is the the you know the new commissioner. He wants us to. Pull out, and I thought it was great because the guy was from the branding department, and you know they've probably historically been ham hamstrung because it's like you're in marketing and branding for a cons- you know a very traditional, formal, potentially stodgy organization. You you promote, you know, hey, we want to pair up with a bathing ape or bape, you know, and yeah, they said yes. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what they're gonna do. I don't know, you know, does that mean SEC is gonna pair up with Supreme? That seems like kind of a, a natural tie in there, but. If, if it forces more conferences to get more fun, I think that's great. I think that's wonderful, and I kind of hope to see more of it. But I don't know. I just wanted to mention that. That's something that struck me today when that got announced, and and I'm hoping to – we'll share whatever they're coming up with as soon as they, they get some images out there. But we'll see that soon enough in uh, the Big 12 title game. Again – there we go. Sorry, ha, my my own thumb kept hanging. Me. We're we're getting close to the end of the hour, but I just want again, if you have any feedback, any of you, you want to come in talk about college football, any topic, coaching searches, whatever, we'd love to hear from you. JD, did you want to add something? Yeah, Trent Dilfer won the Sammy Baugh Trophy. I did not realize that. Uh, you know, one of the awards for being one of the top quarterbacks. I knew that he had a nice little decorated career at Fresno State, but to be a Sammy Baugh winner. Uh, and then, of course, that NCAA record for consecutive pass attempts without a uh, interception that stood for something like 15 years or something like that. Uh, man, I, I'm still just baffled with this hiring decision. Like, this is I, – I don't know. There's a part of me that goes, like, you know, UAB originally when they were looking for who they were going to have when they moved up into the American, I thought it would be some kind of splash hire with momentum – or at least, like, you know, keeping on Brian Vincent as the interim of, hey, you know what, we're keeping consistency and going in this direction. This is just one of those hires that is just absolutely baffling to me of, uh, you know, where they looked at this and said, yes, this is a good idea, and this is where we're going with that. Hey, Adam, uh, you joined us. What's up? What's on your mind? Hey, thanks for letting me speak. So I guess what I just want to talk about and ask is about sort of the Pac-12, with Coach Morton on them. They've done very well this season, surprisingly, and it's just something that really stood out to me with six teams being the top 17. For a conference that I feel is ultimately on the way out, this is a big going out party, and even the championship game I'm really excited about, seeing the Utes go back there one more year. Another year is exciting to me. I did my master's at the U, so I'm very partial to them. So I'd just like to hear your thoughts on all of this, because it's been a very, very unusually really good year for a league that's very much quieted behind the rest of the power five. 
And just to clarify, so you did your master's degree at Utah. That's correct. So I'm very partial yeah. to use. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I I am I've been pleasantly surprised. My own, you know, background like JD, our two teams did not expect I'm a USC alum undergrad. So that's you know where I tend to my heart is. And then I'm a Gophers graduate student, I mean long ago. So that keeps me humble. But hey, they beat Wisconsin. Anyway, but going back to the Pac-12, I I was pleased with the way this season turned out as someone who kind of was disappointed in them year after year. Because in addition to Utah, which people expected would do pretty well, certainly that USC-Utah game was one of the best games of the season, objectively. And it got overshadowed because there were so many, it was a late night game and there were so many big upsets earlier that same day. But Watching that, watching the Utes go for that two-point conversion that ended up being the decide. I mean, that was a game where afterwards both quarterbacks were, were crying on the sideline because they just they left it all out there. It was you know it was spectacular and it was in Salt Lake City, so you could just you could sense that excitement. It was tangible. But I think what really surprised us. I mean, Oregon again. They were expecting them to probably be the team in the North. The two teams that I think are the unsung heroes are Washington. You know, ten and two surprising Oregon when they played them. They've been a stronger team than I think most people expected them to be, but also Oregon State. And that goes back to that USC-Oregon State game kind of earlier in the season. It was a mystery game because USC at that point was still undefeated, and so was Oregon State. And then they had a game that ended up being just a defensive slugfest. No one expected that. Everyone thought it was going to be a firefight, which is what we saw with the Utah game and what we've seen with the UCLA game that USC split. But that team, that game ended up being just really close. And it was that moment in the season where you're like, is USC really, is USC now showing its weak spots and their offense somehow got corralled and they're going to, there's going to be a strong defense that stops them? Or is Oregon State really good? And now we see Oregon State ranked 15 in the latest CFP poll at nine and three. They upset Oregon. Well, upset Oregon. At this point, it's hard to tell, (laughs) you know? So I think that those two teams specifically, have definitely made the Pac-12 a, a more well-rounded conference and certainly better than they had been in the past. J.D. Sirius, what do you think on this? I think low-key, at least when it comes to the Pac-12, uh, Jonathan Smith at Oregon State deserves a couple of votes for Coach of the Year. Just low-key, under the radar, has turned Oregon State into a credible Wonderful team that, especially during, you know, what was formerly called the Civil War game with Oregon and Oregon State, you know, they were down by a significant margin in the third quarter, stopped passing with, I think, about seven minutes left in the third quarter and ended up winning 38 to, uh, what was it, 38 to 34 or something around that way. Uh, The fact that Oregon State uh, is now able to stay consistent and win games I think that's something incredible, and especially for Jonathan Smith to come back to his alma mater, help them get some new facilities, uh, and really kind of bring them up to a higher level in the Pac-12, especially in a year where, you know, uh, Kalen DeBoer, uh, in his very first year at Washington, uh, is now having them on the doorstep of the Rose Bowl with a, uh, you know, very high ranking as well. Uh, you've got Utah continuing to be incredibly consistent. They still have an opportunity to win the Pac-12 this year, get into the Rose Bowl for another year. Uh, and then USC, of course, being a national power, that sleeping giant rising up once again. Uh, and then, you know, we haven't even mentioned UCLA, which for a while looked like they might be that competition for, 
you know, a playoff spot for a hot moment. And then still, even with that, you have a log jam of teams that, you know, very consistent, solid play. They don't lose to the teams that they aren't supposed to lose to. Uh, the Pac-12 this year has been incredible football to watch and very, very fun to do so. You know, I just want to add, I know we've talked about this in terms of why the committee didn't, well, put Alabama ahead of Tennessee despite the head-to-head. And they, they emphasized the loss to South Carolina, even though, uh, as we've said, that Vanny win was was solid. But I, I think there was the, the Tennessee team they saw play Vandy wasn't quite the, the same one that had impressed them before. And when they talk about Washington, that came up a bit too. Because, yeah, Oregon State has had three losses, but they're all, you know, to USC, to Utah, and a Washington, three teams that are all ranked in the CFP. With Washington, even though they have two losses, they really were holding on to the fact that Washington had lost to Arizona State because they had one loss and just they they couldn't work it out. It was, you know, 45-38. Yeah, it was an away game, but this is after Arizona State had already fired Herm Edwards. It, it just didn't make sense how that win ever, probably how that loss ever occurred. So that's why they said they had ranked a 9-3 Utah, one ahead of a 10-2 a Washington. So, you know, it, it, we were talking about that at the, uh, earlier in the uh, in the show about Alabama-Tennessee, but, yeah, here we are talking about it again. You know, um, it's been about an hour. We want to go ahead and wrap this up. We typically wrap up after about an hour when we can, and I know we've got a couple of different conflicts on our schedules. So on behalf of myself, Bob Ekhairi, on behalf of J.D. Moore, on behalf of Sirius we always enjoy talking to you guys on Tuesday night, and we keep doing these, and we'll probably do a few more in the middle of the week as well. Uh, well, not in the middle, but at, as the coaching search goes on, I have a feeling Sunday we may have some more discussion, and we keep working on getting guests now that the flu has finally cleared out of my system. So I wanted to say thanks to all of you who joined us. We always enjoy hearing from you, talking college football, talking whatever you enjoy talking about, and it was an interesting discussion, and hey, we all as a group learned that Trent Dilfer looks like he's going to be the next head coach of UAB. Who knew that? <laughs> so we're all a little bit more informed at the end of this conversation. Anyways, we hope you all have a great night. Now I'm going to hang up and listen. <laughs>